1: Welcome, everybody, to this special edition of The Christian Marauder, as I have a very special guest with me today, Derek Gilbert of Skywatch TV, prolific author, I could say, of the book, Venerations, Great Inception, The Last Clash of the Titans, Bad Moon Rising, and both Derek and his wife, Sharon, are, are really great writers, and Sharon wrote the fantastic series, their Red Wing saga, and co-authored with Derek, their newest book, Giants, gods and dragons which i have not been able to read yet but i can't wait to get that book so i'm just going to make a little plug here i suggest people also watch skywatch tv and the website they have and order both sharon and derek's books and watch the series unraveling revelation which inspired me on interviewing derek here so welcome to the show derek brian it's an honor to be here thank you very much Well, it's an honor to speak with you and I got to tell you your books and the TV shows on skywatch TV has helped me a lot because just a little background back, I don't know, 10 years or 11 years ago, I started investigating, you know, it just came over me. I don't know why I was doing it to investigate the old gods or the fallen watchers. And then, you know, I was digging out, I was doing a lot of research and then, uh, hitting a, a brick wall. Then I turned on the TV and it was flipping around there at the time when I had cable and I saw you guys and, um, Tom Horn talking about this and you and Dr. Michael Heiser and some other folks talking about these old gods. I'm going, this is right up my alley because this is what I'm studying. So I ended up getting a lot of your books and also Gary Wayne's book and I'm a geek. So what do I do? I go into your <laughs> notes section and check out your references.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what Sharon and I do too. We we uh, like to dig into the footnotes and the references and make notes. Okay. I got to, I got to look up that paper. I got to look up that paper. I mean, uh, normal couples who are happily married will look, Hey, Friday night, let's, you know, date night, let's go see a movie. Let's go out to dinner, whatever. No, for us, it's like, okay, let's dig into academia.edu and see if we can find new papers on ancient You know mesopotamian cosmology or whatever
1: yeah that's that's what i do too it's 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 i don't know i just things have opened up and now i understand why i was led that i you know to do that because what i'm seeing today is kind of what we want to talk about today i I just thought that this this is a wide range of topic you know the world economic form the new world order and how it relates to the book of revelation the bail cycle and uh, ancient creation myth <laughs> that's a tall order isn't it
0: <laughs> yeah uh, we we can summarize that all in one hour we'd basically uh i think earn phds just for being able to do that but uh,
1: oh yes <laughs> we'll just start wherever we're going to start at here you know that's the only thing i can say is well w- one of the interesting
0: things because we, we've been watching the world economic forum for a while sharon uh, picked up on this as uh, she was doing research for uh, a book to which we contributed chapters and that is uh Tom Horn's uh, book, *The Messenger*, and uh, this is a follow-up to his book, uh, *The Wormwood Prophecy*, which relates to a dream that he had, which seemed to him prophetic. And when Tom Horn says that he's received something that he thinks is prophetic, because he doesn't normally do this, he doesn't go out and claim that he's a, a prophet, but he did receive a, a strong sense some years back that Pope Benedict Pope Benedict was going to retire. And, and on a very specific month, it'll happen in April. And I forget the year specifically, but, you know, just not, not that long ago. Uh, and he went public with it, which is really a gutsy thing to do, considering that no pope had resigned in over 600 years or something. Um, well, it turned out that it was true. And he's also got some other things that he's not shared with us, but family confirms. And we've gotten to know the family over the last six years of our association with Skywatch TV to the point where we know that they don't just blow smoke when it comes to things like this. Yeah. They don't make claims to get clicks. So when Tom says that he's got this sense that this asteroid Apophis might come closer to Earth than NASA or the European Space Agency or astronomers in general are telling us, we take note. And so uh, that led to the book The Wormwood Prophecy, The Messenger. Then we looked into as uh, a, uh, a follow-up, and we, we were tracking some of the, uh, uh, the strange correlations that uh, go along with this particular. Uh, asteroid which is large enough to do serious damage to earth if it should happen to to hit now we're being told that it will come inside the orbit of some of our higher flying um, orbital satellites on april 13th of 2029 and uh sharon was looking into this but she's she's a real creative thinker i tend to look at things in a very linear bullet point fashion uh, which I guess is why I was good at debate in high school, because you have to, you know, put together your case and you've got to go through the, you know, the the step by step and make your argument, build your case, and so forth. She tends to look at things in it from a different perspective, and I guess that's why our two books have have turned out better than they would if it had just been me writing them, because she comes in with viewpoints that I just don't have. Um, She was looking at the Great Reset, which is the initiative proposed by the World Economic Forum. That's a group headed up by Klaus Schwab, who looks like he's from central casting for Bond villains, (laughs) you know, bald guy, German accent. All he needs is a white fluffy cat, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Especially when he starts talking about fundamentally restructuring our global economy. And when you start looking at the uh, predictions that they have for the year 2030 on their website, that by 2030, we will own nothing and we'll like it, we'll be happy. We will rent everything, and all of these things will be delivered to us by drone. Of course, they never answer the question, well, wait, who owns the things that are coming to you by drone? Who owns the drones? (laughs) You know, somebody's got to own these things. If we're renting them from somebody, somebody owns them. Who owns them if it's not us? That question is never addressed. Anyway, the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, she found a website devoted to the Great Reset, where they literally divided the word reset into R-E colon S-E-T. And she recognized very quickly because of the research that we've been doing that those are the names of two Egyptian deities from the ancient pantheon, the god Ray, yep. commonly called Ra, but uh, actually into ancient, uh, uh, from the ancient Egyptian is properly transliterated into English as Ray, R-E. So Ray, the creator god, the sun god, and then Set, who was the god of foreigners, the god of storms, and the god of chaos. So here you've got order and chaos. And, of course, this brings to mind the old maxim of the occult realm, order ab chaos, order out of chaos. They have to create chaos so that they can then create the conditions to bring into being a new order. And that appears to be exactly what the World Economic Forum is trying to do, Uh, except that, as Josh Peck and I argued in The Day the Earth Stands Still, which is our take on the occult origins of the modern UFO phenomenon, what they really want is to create chaos out of chaos, Mm -hmm. because... Uh, and Sharon and I picked up on that. Uh, Josh and I kind of touched on that in that book, looking at the, the, essentially the summoning of this chaos entity, Set or Typhon to the Greeks, and the uh, phenomenon of chaos magic, which was uh, derived from Aleister Crowley's occult teachings, uh, Um th- There appears to be a, a modern effort for people who may not even know what they're doing to deconstruct what god created and called good and this we believe is the influence of the first rebel rebel in the bible and the last one to be defeated we talk about this in giants gods and dragons we've got a forthcoming book we're working on that will focus strictly on this particular entity Uh, and that is leviathan the embodiment the spirit of chaos who is not a symbol of chaos we believe it's a literal entity at least that's how he's described by job in Job chapter, uh, and I'll probably get this wrong again. I seem to do it every time. Job 41, I think, where he yeah. goes into a long description of Leviathan and describes what is obviously a dragon, although most Bible commentators say, oh, it's a crocodile. <laughs> yeah, it's one that breathes fire, apparently. Um, so you, you, and we go into some detail as to why we believe that's the first rebel in the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 2 where uh, God is hovering over the deep, deep in Hebrew is to which is essentially a cognate for the Sumerian word Tiamat, which was their name for this chaos monster. Um, it's not a coincidence that the uh, religions of the ancient Near East, and even, you know, as late as the Norse pantheon, where Thor had to defeat a uh, serpent named Jormungandr, where a warrior God had to defeat a monster, usually depicted as a, as a, uh, a dragon, often with multiple heads, seven heads to be specific. Uh, you'll notice in Isaiah uh, 27 that uh, God will someday crush the heads, plural, of Leviathan. That, that is the chaos dragon, the chaos entity that had to be subdued. But you see similar stories in Canaanite, in Akkadian, in Sumerian, in Hurrian, Hittite, Greek, with Zeus defeating the monster Typhon. And now here we've got the uh, World Economic Forum and its great Ray set order chaos. Being put right in our faces, Um, this also uh, relates to what we argue in the book is the work of the rider on the black horse, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, we argue that that rider, who goes forth with the scales, which in Greek is zugos, uh, which actually means yoke instead of scales. Every other place it's used in the New Testament, that Greek word zugos means a yoke, like you place on the neck of an ox to get him to pull your uh, your plow or to uh tread you know to, to pull the the milling wheel around to uh, you know, make flour essentially economic servitude is what's being described there and that's exactly what the world economic forum is proposing is economic servitude this is an effort by the top 0.1 forget the one percent this is the 0.1 wanting to embr- <laughs> entrench themselves at the top of that pyramid and push the rest of us down to the lowest common denominator
1: and that's that's right i'm seeing the same thing you know i i, I turned on the computer my, on my phone i looked it up and I, I sure enough on google news this thing appeared from a reputable financial site and it was about the great reset and that we need the world's economies need to be reset and so i bookmarked it saved it so i can pull it up because it's gone now but basically they said that the plan was to Um, what's that what's an old phrase out of the bible the the borrower is enslaved to the lender and so the these top elites that you're talking about play both sides or they they get the debt increase so uh, they get you you know they've been doing this for eons and so now they're getting the technology where it's time that they get paid back because their actual view is that they own us that's the view and that's what this article is pointing out in their own language it's much nicer than what i'm putting it of course i'm just summarizing but it's really like we are basically what do they say the gdp of the entire world is what approaching 300 trillion or something like that and so there's no way this is sustainable it's time to mm-hmm. reset and so basically Um, How how are they going to reset? Well, since they own everything, they view us as uh, servitude with them, the world's elites are, which many, many prominent politicians from John F. Kennedy and some other politicians have warned about this ruthless conspiracy here. Not a conspiracy theory, this is fact. These people warned about it. Many of them died. And so, the idea here the Great Reset that I just read in this article was to uh, basically go to a digital currency where right, right. you own nothing, and they own everything because you owe it to them because they gave you your house, they gave you your car, and they gave you this, so now you don't own anything. And, and on the World Economic Forum um, 2016 uh, website there, I found this video back then, where the you don't own anything video and they're, they're talking about this stuff. And uh, it's just exactly what you said. They, they they
0: make it sound like it's, it's wonderful that uh, you, you won't have any stress because you won't own anything. Well, you know what? The idea that everything that I'm using belongs to somebody else who can decide to take it away from me at any moment, that's a lot more stressful than me owning things. Uh, But yeah, that, that, this is the, this is what they're trying to condition our kids to buy into. Uh, and it's, they have lured us into a debt servitude. And this is why we argue in the book, uh, that, uh, and as far as I know, I've not seen this done before. Now there, there, probably is somebody who's done this before Sharon and me, because if we can think of it, somebody, the 2000 years, we, you know, scholars and Christians have been studying end times prophecy. Somebody's probably come up with this, but, uh, Sharon pointed out in a presentation she did several years ago that, uh, John named the rider on the fourth horse, the rider on the pale horse, is Thanatos, death. Thanatos mm-hmm. was a known entity in the world of the greeks in canaanite he would have been called Mot. yes in, in hebrew that's maveth and we see uh not to rabbit trail too far but there's some places in the bible where references to death maveth are really references to this death god uh, in the canaanite Baal cycle Mot is described as having this insatiable appetite to you know get our bail cycle reference in here uh with a lower lip dragging the ground and his upper lip or tongue reaching the stars you know he is never ever satisfied well that's exactly why hosea and then quoted later by paul in first corinthians 15 argues that death is swallowed up in victory it's a slap in the face at this death god who is never satisfied yahweh swallows him up in victory oh death where is your victory death where is your sting so that's why we look and, and why you are now looking into the Bible through these eyes, looking for these references to these entities that the apostles and prophets knew were exi- existed and were being worshipped by their neighbors. So Sharon said, all right, death is mentioned and Hades comes with him. And we know any, if you know anything about Greek mythology or Greek religion, actually, uh, the ancient Greeks, the classical Greeks understood that Hades was an entity as well as a place. So we've named these two. So who are the riders? Who are the other three riders? And so we set out to try to identify the riders on the horses, and we named them based on the clues that were given. And we think we've made a pretty good case for, I mean, the rider on the red horse, the god of war, that's pretty easy. That's Aries, Mars. But what we didn't know before we started the research was that uh, uh, he was known to the Moabites as their national god, Chemosh. Uh, The rider on the white horse, we argue, is Apollo, and there, we can go into that later if you like, but the rider on the black horse we argued was Nabu because as we started digging into the clues there, what does it mean when you've got these clues in, 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 the, uh, in, in Revelation chapter six, where we're told that it's gonna take a day's wages to buy just enough grain and oil to survive for one person for one day. Uh, what does that, well, what does that look like? We started looking at our current economic situation where the average student coming out of college has about uh, $35,000 in debt which at uh, four and two thirds percent, which is typical, paid off over 20 years, which is typical, they're actually going to pay back close to $54,000. And except in very special circumstances, very rare circumstances, those students coming out with that 35 grand in debt can never discharge that in a bankruptcy. You know, I can speak to that for personal experience. They'll say, okay, we'll put it in forbearance, but they keep charging you interest. And when you come out the other side of your bankruptcy, then you owe even more. Well, they own you. They own you. Uh, mortgage loans now out 30 years car loans now out to 10 years it's all about debt servitude it's getting you paying monthly and telling you that hey look low low monthly payments well okay you're you're adding another link in that chain that ties you to the banks as a debt slave forever this is why in the old testament god insisted that the israelites have a jubilee you know, there was a, the Shemitah year, and then there was a, yeah, every seven years, all debts were reset. It was part of the cycle, and the Hebrews got away from that. And there are those who've uh, made a really good teaching that the reason the uh, Israelites eventually lost the land was because they got away from a number of God's teachings, and this seven-year cycle being one of those reasons. But um, what we, we, we so as we started digging into this and saw the, the work of, and what this god Nabu was worshipped for in the ancient world, uh, and he was a very popular god, especially around the time of the Neo Babylonian Empire. That's the uh, not the original Amorite Babylon of Hammurabi the Great. This is the Neo Babylon, the Chaldean Empire, founded by Nabopolassar, whose name means uh, Nabu saved the king, or whatever, and uh, uh, ne- Nebu uh nebuzeradan and nebuchadnezzar you know uh, yeah. nabu save or protect the prince or protect the only son uh Nabunidus, he was very popular in fact he became more popular than the chief god of the pantheon marduk um the greeks and the romans knew him as uh, hermes and as mercury and not coincidentally mercury is based on the same latin word mercs that means merchant merchandise mercantile commerce all of that comes from that same root word. He was the god of merchants, the god of thieves, probably a coincidence, <laughs> no, <laughs> but <don't> also the, <laughs> the, the, the god of scribes and the god of, uh, well, uh, accounts and ledgers in ancient Babylon in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So he was the one who kept track of all the accounts, who gave how much to the temple, so that, in which who paid their tithes to the gods? Yes. And uh, one one of the things, that, and I'll just toss this out because I just find this really amusing. It's like the spirit realm is having a laugh at our expense. Back in 2009, after the uh, the subprime mortgage collapse, when the economy was in a shambles and we were funneling, uh, you know, 700, whatever it was, uh, 7 trillion, oh, I forget how much money it was, uh, the, the big bailout package that uh, everybody voted on. Oh, wait, we didn't vote for it. Most of us were against it. The Congress yeah. voted for it. Oh, yeah, yeah forgive yeah. me. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. They bailed out the bankers who caused the problem, surprise, surprise. Yeah. And then Mastercard yeah. uh, initiated a new fee that merchants have to pay every time they swipe a Mastercard, whether it's a debit card, credit card, Mastercard, whatever. They pay two cents to Mastercard for this particular new fee. And other cards have a similar fee: Discover, Visa, American Express. You, you know, Mastercard could have named this anything. They could have called it the uh, just service charge or. Merchant fee or whatever transaction fee. Instead, they decided to call it the network access brand usage fee, the NABU. So every time you use your MasterCard, you pay two cents to NABU. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and they, they these occult people are very open about it, but they they hide it so well. I mean, it's out in the open, but they hide it. It's just part of their thing. I uh, when I study NABU, I just sit there go, wow, uh, go back into the occult realm there. It's they use writing, record keeping, language, uh, teaching, and wisdom to implement occult knowledge and dispenses. Yeah, and
0: Nabu was so he was essentially the one who would write things down for the temple. But because in uh, ancient Chaldea, the uh, kingdom of, of Nebuchadnezzar, most people were illiterate. And so whenever you needed to send uh, a letter to a relative or whenever you needed to write anything down, a, a, a deed or a bill of sale, you had to go to one of the scribes who were the special uh, jurisdiction of Nabu. So Nabu was essentially the God of uh, uh, priests, lawyers, and accountants. And essentially that, you know, those three classes of people run the world.
1: They sure do. And then we are, people are indebted to them. So they think they own you. And I remember 1986, 87, um, this paper came out um, it silent weapon for quiet wars most people pass it off as a bunch of um, you know junk and we didn't know what to think of it because it was kind of far out there so we got a hold of it uh, and there was big talk when I was a young Christian about this and it was hotly debated and a lot of people used this as templates for sci-fi and spy novels and, and um, James Bond movies everything else there's this specter Of James Bond is kind of based on the on that too and but when I go back years later I'm looking at the same pamphlet and I'm going boy that's that sounds like today it just sounds this is exactly what they're doing and they want they own you they are at war with the American people they want to collapse the economy the economic engine of the world reset it in fact the article I'm talking about was talking about resetting the debt it's sort of like the occult version of Jubilee
0: yeah yeah because they don't call it jubilee but that's that's what they're talking about
1: they call it order out of chaos reset right right. (laughs) and that's that's what i was seeing and um it's all about record keeping they want to track you they want to trace you they want to control everything you do this is a perfect world for narcissists and what could i say when you have (laughs) the ultimate narcissist satan in charge of everything yeah (laughs) well you're, you're absolutely
0: right um tracking everything uh, keeping ledgers and everything essentially it is uh, technocracy yeah, and yeah. Um, i i highly recommend a book for for your viewers if they've not heard of it the book technocracy rising by patrick m wood w-o-o-d okay, technocracy okay. rising is an excellent overview he's a, a, an excellent researcher very careful footnotes uh, cites all the sources and shows how this is not a new thing this has been uh, in the works for probably 90 years since the 1930s, but he views it from a Christian perspective. But he saves the prophetic implications of this for the end of the book, and, and that was really uh, impressive because you will he he by doing it this way he can draw in people who may not approach this from a Christian perspective because if, if uh, people don't accept the Bible or if they're Christians who don't don't accept Revelation as part of scripture in fact there's a uh, there are plenty out there who like me raised in very liturgical denominations that are uh, amillennial who look at the book of revelation and look at anything in genesis before about chapter 12 as just made up you know the israelites made this up to create an origin story for themselves in revelation well john was old and who knows what he was seeing yeah. um or it was all fulfilled in the first century you know, Nero was the Antichrist, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if people approach this subject the way we're discussing it right now, sort of taking it as a given that, uh, you know, with a futurist worldview of how a futurist view of prophecy, that these things are yet to be fulfilled. And looking at how what the World Economic Forum is doing fits into that. And they, again, they, they know not what they do, I suspect, most of them.
1: Um, I'm 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 suspecting that the top tier, like the top one 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 percent, like you're talking about the zero zero one percent, they do know what they're doing. They
0: they they may they may, but uh, I would suspect that most people who are on board with this program just don't understand what it is that they're doing. They're just useful idiots. But uh, many Christians, certainly non Christians, but many Christians looking at this and hearing us talk about this would think we're just absolutely nuts. So Patrick Wood, in his book, Technocracy Rising, does a brilliant job of documenting that this is happening, that this is going on. And I think anyone with a uh, perceptive mind can look at the news and see what is being proposed by the WEF is just an extension of what Patrick wrote in this book that came out more than five years ago. So um, and and then he hits them with the other the other punch, which is, oh, yeah, that's right. This fits right into the book of Revelation. And this is essentially a return to Babel. And we also make that case in Giants, Gods, and Dragons, that uh, this is essentially the same thing that Nimrod tried to do, the rider on the black horse. Uh, we see archaeological evidence of this in uh, what, what scholars call the, uh, the, the distinguishing or identifying artifact of a period of history called the Uruk period, U-R-U-K, that was uh, in the Bible called Erek, E-R-E-C-H, E-R-E-C-H. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel, Erek, and Ekkad, A-C-C-A-D. Uh, that was uh, you know, the kingdom that eventually uh, became an empire under Sargon the Great. Nimrod was uh, a, a king who, who obviously dreamed of empire. And there was a period of about almost 1,000 years where that city in southeast Iraq, Uruk, dominated the Fertile Crescent, the land between the, Mes- the uh, Euphrates and the Tigris rivers roughly from about 3900 BC to about 3100 BC using the dates that archaeologists set. I know that doesn't fit. If you, you know, add up the ages of the patriarchs, it doesn't fit, but just using their numbers, Mm -hmm. they know that there was a period of history where that city dominated Mesopotamia as far North as into Turkey, because they needed things like timber and stone for building. And there is none in Southeast Iraq. It's a lot of sand and mud. So, N- Nimrod's career fits into that period of history, archaeologically speaking. And the identifying artifact, the way an archaeologist can tell if a, if a new dig comes from this period of history is if they find something called the beveled rim bowl. Hmm. It's a very crudely made, simple clay bowl, not even fired. It's, it's like something a child would make out of Play-Doh. You know, and they'd leave it out in the sun until it dried. And they would use that, apparently, to carry a day's rations. Because the Sumerian symbol, the logogram in Sumerian for bread is a picture of one of these crudely made bowls. I mean, we saw some of these at the British Museum when we were blessed to go to England a year before last. You can still see the thumbprints of the Sumerian who made the bowl 5,000 years ago. That's how crude these things are. And they find hundreds of them at these sites, sometimes thousands. You see one of those, ah, okay, Uruk period. Sometime between 3900, 3,100 BC. Why was it so? Many, why was this the symbol for bread? The symbol for to eat was a human head holding a bowl up to its mouth, because that's what they were given as their day's ration of grain. Or it, we might put it, we might put it in modern terms: this was their universal basic income.
1: Yeah, I do to say that. <laughs> that's so, what they want.
0: Exactly. So. It, it's astonishing, in a sense, to see n- the news fulfilling what we see in in history and in prophecy. And yet we, you know, then anyway, I kind of have to laugh at myself for saying, "Why am I surprised?" Because Jesus Christ told us these things would happen. So why are we shocked and astonished when they're happening? Yeah. We shouldn't be. We should, in fact, we should rejoice. I mean, it, it's and this is the key thing. And Sharon. God bless her. I, I really depend on her wise counsel in this regard because it's really easy uh, for me, with my head in the news five days a week, to produce the daily news updates for Skywatch TV to get uh, really aggravated about this stuff. It's like, how can these people be so stupid? They don't see what they're doing. He said, Look, God said there would be a great delusion, okay? A great deception. And he said these things would take place. But when they do, Look up for your redemption draws near. Amen. Like, oh yeah. Okay. And it should then fire us up to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with our family members, our friends, our colleagues, our co-workers. Um, I, I know that there are some out there who suggest that uh, those of us who hold to a pre-tribulational view, as I do, uh, that we're just sitting back and waiting for our, our free ticket out of here. Uh, but really, that's not the case, because. When you see what's on the other side of that, when you look into the book of Revelation and see the terrible things that will take place after, you know, beginning with the sixth seal, uh, we oh, argue okay. in the book that the first five seals have already been opened. I mean, obviously, if those four writers are named and they're, uh, we, we can identify them as entities who were known to the ancient Greeks, Romans, Moabites, uh, Hittites, you know, okay. all the ites, they're out, they're writing. Yes. and we we explain why uh when we see in revelation 4 the lamb appears and then first thing he does is open the open the scroll and uh we see in the book of acts there were well for example Stephen when he was being stoned looked up and he saw the son of man at the right hand of god the father so jesus was in heaven by the year 35 or so yeah. and yes. uh yeah so anyway we believe those first five seals have been opened. The fifth seal being the souls under the altar crying out, "How long, O Lord?" With the next one, the great earthquake of the sixth seal being the uh, uh, perhaps the energy released from billions and billions of believers being transformed, resurrected into incorruptible bodies all at once.
1: Amen. Like, I, like I, I believe in pre-tribulation rapture too. I always have. Feel it in my bones. I know that's that's just how I view yeah. it. i I look at it as you see the awful
0: things i'm sorry i just very quickly wanted to finish that point we see the awful things on the other side of that sixth seal why would we not want to try to share the hope that we have with our friends and our family members to say hey look don't be here when that happens
1: i come to the same conclusion derek and my wife has too we are trying to witness to some family members yeah, thankfully my side of the family say but my wife's side is a little hard-headed. <laughs> but uh, we're working on them, but you know we try to tell them this stuff they look at you like,
0: huh? That's one of the reasons that Sharon and I have felt so led in recent years to focus on archaeology and the writings from the ancient world. I mean, what is it that the um, the prophets and the apostles knew about uh, the beliefs of their neighbors? And credit to Dr. Michael Heiser for inspiring us to go in this direction when we began to discuss between the two of us the implications of his divine counsel research which is the idea and that term for viewers not familiar with it comes from psalm 82 where god takes his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods plural he passes judgment so psalm 82 is essentially a um, a courtroom scene where god is uh declare, decreeing uh, punishment on these small g god's and you can think of them as fallen angels, if you will, although the term angel is kind of imprecise. They are supernatural beings, but you know, not angels as we would think of them, um, angels being typically the, the messengers who just carried out simple tasks. Uh, these would be watchers who were quite a bit more powerful. Uh, as we see in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, where he dreams that uh, he's going to be Punished for seven years for his uh, his hubris, his pride. Yes. And uh, that uh, that punishment was decreed by, by the watchers. watchers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not like they're they're not carrying out God's decree. They have decreed His punishment. So God apparently designates some authority to these powerful supernatural entities that are still subordinate and subservient to Him. Mm-hmm. But like us humans, He created them with free will too. And a number of them obviously have rebelled, which is where we get the gods of the pagan nations: Baal, Molech, Chemosh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we're told that there are a group of them that are currently in chains in gloomy darkness, in Tartarus, in fact, no, Second no. Peter 2, 4, Jude 6 and 7. Um, so these, uh, these entities uh, around the throne of God, think of them as his, his royal court, is in Psalm 82 called the Divine Council. And when we started considering the implications of that research and the uh, activities of these, these uh, beings who exercise their free will, suddenly the Bible gets a lot more interesting because there are things in the Old Testament that only make sense, well, things all through the Bible that only make sense if you understand that they're directed at the activities of these entities or uh, the beliefs of the pagans who served them. Uh, a classic example is the, the parting of the Red Sea. This was sort of what you know, was the, the forehead slap moment or the epiphany, if you will, um, when Sharon and I were, were doing our weekly Bible study uh, the Gilbert House Fellowship, which we record and re- release as a podcast on Sunday mornings. Uh, a few years ago, as we were going through Exodus chapter 14, we, we noticed for the first time that God told Moses, as the Israelites were escaping Egypt, he told Moses to turn back. Like, Wait a minute. I don't remember that from the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he told them to turn back into camp at a place uh, called P haharoth I- I'm mispronouncing it, opposite Baal Zaphon. And I'd just been doing some reading about the god Baal. And I was like, wait a minute. Now, Baal is a Canaanite god. Why is he in Egypt? Well, scholars know that, historians know, that there was a period in Egyptian history called the Second Intermediate Period where uh, Egypt was under the control of Semitic-speaking people from Canaan and Syria for a while, uh, 100 to 200 years, depending on who you ask. They were called by the Egyptians Hyksos, which means rulers of foreign lands, They were Amorites, probably, and their chief god was Baal. He was the king of their pantheon. Like, oh, okay, so that explains why Baal was in Egypt. And in fact, as you do more reading on this, you find out that uh, the Egyptians worshipped these Semitic gods. In addition to their, in fact, at the time of the Israelite sojourn in Egypt, the Egyptian gods weren't actually Egyptian because they were there alongside the Hyksos for a while. And yet, their gods continued on even after the Egyptians drove the Hyksos out and then enslaved the Israelites. Uh, we know that 200 years after the uh, Exodus, which occurred about 1406, about 1446 BC, uh, the the great king Ramses II, Ramses the Great, who was not the Pharaoh of the Exodus, but uh, he was still one of the one of the most powerful of all of the Egyptian pharaohs, the Egyptian kings. He was a Baal worshipper. Yeah the Egyptians equated him with Set, interestingly enough, and uh, th- he erected a stela, a commemorative stone that depicted his father, Seti I, handing an offering to Baal. So, Baal was in Egypt, even though he was not an Egyptian god, the Egyptians still worshipped him. And he became the king of the, the Canaanite pantheon by defeating the sea god, Yam, in single combat. Yeah. So, in fact that's why Semitic sailors Phoenicians Amorites and the Phoenicians who were the sailors par excellence in the ancient world they were who you wanted if you needed to build a navy in a hurry you'd hired Phoenicians they considered Baal their patron god because Baal had mastered the sea and so they would you know Baal was their protector and so here's Yahweh the god of the Hebrews leading them to a place in front of uh, a a temple, apparently sacred to Baal, on the shore of the Red Sea, and saying, now, watch this. And he parts the Red Sea and allows them to cross. And then when the Baal-worshiping Egyptians follow, he closes the sea on top of them. That's why God parted the Red Sea. It was a message to Baal and the people who worship him. Hey, my people are free, and now we are coming for you, Next, we are bringing
1: them to Canaan and taking over that
0: place with all of your people in it. Well,
1: I see that in the book of Revelation, too. It's leading up to almost like the same thing. I see this struggle between uh, the, the fallen watchers who want to control everything. I mean, to me, I worked in criminal justice for so That's my career path that I was on. And I just see criminals. <laughs> they're narcissists. I mean, these are the worst of the worst, and they're very narcissistic. And... And so uh, it's like, how do you deal with narcissists? Well, God's the only one who can in these type of entities. And he's, he, 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 he mocks them every step of the way. And that crossing of the Red Sea was a great mocking of it. I see it all through the book of Revelation, mocking him. I actually see it taking shape in the world economic form and the new world order that's taking shape now. I, I kind of see this, this divine setup that God's getting ready to crack down on, these, on this whole thing. And I thank God for the rapture. We'll get out of here before that happens. But um, yeah, because the world will not be a very pleasant place at that mm-hmm. time. Because he's turning them over to them, and wow, it's not going to be a pretty. Well,
0: place. yeah, and, and this is this is something that, that we stumbled onto as well that uh, we had not noticed before we started down this this path of of research. Um, we we, I, I suspect your viewers are probably familiar with the Genesis six account. The uh, sons of God being the. Uh, watcher class angels who uh, rebelled against his authority saw that the daughters of man were fair and took wives of all that they chose and the the book of first enoch what's uh, typically the first 36 chapters called the book of watchers really goes into some detail about this and the the sin that they committed not just corrupting human dna by uh, co-mingling with human women but uh, teaching us things we weren't supposed to know like sorcery and divination and uh, uh, making implements of war and waging war and, and such things. Uh, those are the, the angels who sinned described by Peter in Second Peter 2, beginning at verse 4. And when you read Second Peter 2 in full context, you see that uh, it's clear from the context of 2 Peter 2 that this was a sexual sin that these angels created. And just likewise in uh, Jude verses 6 and 7, where he uh, describes the sin of these angels as uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah, who likewise committed sexual immorality. So they crossed a species barrier. And the book of First Enoch is very explicit in this, You, you know, saying that these angels defiled themselves with women. But um, we, we read in Revelation 9, where the, the abyss is opened, and the, uh, the one who's called the king of those in the abyss, uh, Apollyon the destroyer, or Abaddon in Hebrew, is their king? I'm I'm arguing in a book that I'm working on right now that this is the entity that we would know from Greek mythology as Kronos, um, and uh, yeah.
1: I have a quick question. Would Kronos sure. un- be Saturn? I'm just kidding. Yes, yes. Kronos. Ask them what I put together, and would Enlil be Saturn? Yes. Okay, so I was correct in my assumption.
0: Okay, Absolutely, yes. It's the same entity under multiple different names. And I'm going into some detail in this book. It's, uh, in fact, the forthcoming book, just to uh, rabbit trail down that road for a second. Hopefully out this summer. uh, I'm about, oh, maybe halfway through right now. Well, I hope I'm I'm actually closer to 60% done. But uh, anyway, uh, this this entity has been known by multiple different names throughout the years. Uh, Enlil was one. He was the chief entity of Sumer, before the rise of Marduk, which uh, was complete, Marduk pretty much pushed Enlil out of the way by at the time of Saul and David, so around 1100-1000 BC. Um, he was also known as uh, Dagon in what is now Syria. The Amorites who lived along the Euphrates River worshipped Dagon as their chief god, but uh, he was, in the, uh, the text records, he was identified by the same Sumerian logogram. Okay, so the same cuneiform symbol represented Dagon and Enlil. Mm-hmm. and they both shared the epithet great mountain mm-hmm. so you can equate those two there was a hurrian god the hurrians occupied that area in the north of iraq and syria the, the uh, that we would call kurdistan today you know southern turkey northern iraq northern syria uh, that kurdish region was occupied by the hurrians as uh, far back as well the days of nimrod really middle of the 4th millennium bc uh, their chief god was kumarbi and kumarbi is equated with Dagon and with Enlil, and uh, they would all be equated with the Canaanite creator god El, whose uh, Mount of Assembly, his uh, abode, was yeah. according to scholars Mount Hermon, which of course connects them all then to Shemayaza, who was considered the chief of the watchers who, who rebelled, according yes. to the book of First Enoch. But they were then also equated with Cronos and Saturn. And since the uh, later the classical Romans and Greeks knew that Rome or that uh, that Saturn and uh, Kronos was the Phoenician god Baal Haman, who was the one who also, like Kronos, accepted child sacrifice. Just like in the myth, you know, Kronos ate his kids because it had been prophesied that one of them would rise up and overthrow him. Um, The early Christians understood this. Well, of course, Baal Haman takes child sacrifice because Kronos ate his children. Mm -hmm. They understood all this. So these are the Titans who are in the abyss, in other words. Yes. The titans of Greek mythology are the watchers, and they are in the abyss. And that's what's getting out in Revelation chapter 9. And those things will get five months, according to Revelation 9, to torment those who don't have the seal of God in their foreheads. Now, when you go back to Genesis chapter 8, you read something very curious in Genesis 8, verse 3. always hear, you know, 40 days and 40 nights of the rain. Okay. But beginning at verse 3, the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated... And at the end of the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. 150 days. Now, guess what? When you've got a 30-day lunar calendar, 150 days is exactly five months. Now, do you ever wonder why the entities coming out of the abyss in Revelation 9 get five months to torment humanity? Because it's not like a number that we see often, like 40 or 70 or 100. Yeah. Why five months? Because it's a bookend. It's a callback to Genesis chapter 8, when these entities were in the abyss, in chains and gloomy darkness, according to Jude, watching as their children, the Nephilim, are being destroyed by the waters that God sent to wipe out all life on earth. They'll get five months at the end to torment those who refuse to repent and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not a coincidence. And this helps us to understand why this stuff is in here. And so this is this is what frustrates me. I, Sharon and I actually consider ourselves um, missionaries to the church, as it were, because we, there are Christians out there who, who, who believe we don't need the Old Testament at all. And the book of Revelation is just too weird to even worry about. You're essentially cutting off the ends of the Bible. So in other words, you're trying to build a house, a theological house, and you've got no foundation and no roof, and you wonder why your walls won't stay up. Mm
1: -hmm. Because
0: you're not, you have nothing to hold, it's not anchored to anything, and you've got nothing to protect it from all of the stuff the enemy's going to throw at it
1: not at all i mean i see the same thing i feel like a missionary to the church too and uh it's and a lot of people just don't understand this stuff but one one thing i find fascinating and in my research too that that correlates to yours too is uh, the nephilim came okay they are the products of the titans are the watchers here Mm -hmm. and the idea that i discovered is that they wanted to alter the human image and human likeness in other words to dehumanize humanity in order to get God so mad that he has to come back to earth to take care of him. It's almost like a reverse psychology of the slaying of Timiat is what I was saying. And since I worked in community corrections, I mean, I worked with inmates who would, you, instead of using deputies names, they'd use somebody in another pod area or housing areas name. And, and nickname them as the deputy, in order to cover what they're trying to do, which is usually uh, get the deputy to get drugs into the oh okay and stuff. And so they're very they're very clever about it. So I kept seeing that cycle in there. And so it's almost like they wanted to do that, but that 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 failed. And so when Jesus did come to Earth, yeah, they and Jesus died, and but he rose again, and now he he crushed the serpent's head we're forgiven, we can enter into heaven, the devil's been defeated, but he still wants to draw God into this one last battle, and he has to alter the human genome, and I find it so interesting that Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, now we have the world economic form Mm -hmm. with little tattoos they want to put in you to alter your DNA, they want to put computer parts and make you transhuman, and this they're very open about it they want to control and say that you can't eat meat you know yeah yeah (laughs) it's like i'm watching the same thing template being played out from genesis chapter six from what i researched when it says in the book of jasher there they mix one species with another in 2016 i thought it was pretty wild and i was you know people laughed at me i said well they just put jellyfish dna with a, a rabbit so now you have glow-in-the-dark bunnies <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> people were laughing at me and, but I, I i'm glad i turned on Skywatch tv because you guys were talking about the same thing I, at least i didn't feel so alone
0: <laughs> we we hear that a lot and uh you know we understand it and i'm very blessed in that uh you know i'm married to a, a wonderful woman who understands the scientific aspects of this better than i do uh because that's her bailiwick uh, molecular biology with an emphasis on genetics, by the way, so she can oh, understand what's going on here. And uh, you know, some of it is, uh, is not as scary as, as some are making it out to be. But the, the point is not so much whether they can do this. I mean, we know that the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab are talking about uh, this, what they call a fourth industrial revolution, mm-hmm. and that they want to try to um, uh, defeat death. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm putting together a presentation that I'll record this weekend for uh, the Discerning Minds Conference coming up the weekend of March 26th, 27th, 28th, um, that uh, deals with transhumanism and the days of Noah. Uh, the point is not whether they can do it, because they make it sound easier and more plausible than it really is. The human mind is far more complex than they would like us to believe. They think that somehow this is just hardware, and uh, you can download the software and then re-upload it into a... Uh, a silicon substrate, in other words, into a, an artificial brain, and you will thus live forever. You will tran—you can transfer your consciousness into a, well, no, I'm sorry, it's just not that easy. It really is not that easy. Those who've done this work, and I've interviewed Dr. Hugo de Garris, who is considered one of the world's leading researchers in artificial research, or artificial intelligence research, rather, um, he said that they were building neural networks, which are the black boxes that essentially power artificial intelligences, and what they do to try to train these neural networks to um, think is they, they run input data into these things and see what kind of output they get. And if they don't like the output, then they'll tweak it, tweak the parameters, and then run it through there again until it you know, looks the way they want it to look. But he admitted, he said, I finally got out of it because I realized I wasn't doing science, I was doing engineering. Yeah. We don't really know what goes on inside the black box, he told me. And other artificial intelligence researchers say the same thing. They don't really know what happens inside those neural networks that they're building. Now, speculation here, but the brain, we now know, is essentially a bioelectrical device. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Our thoughts are impulses that are electrical impulses that, that fire back and forth across neurons inside our head. Scientists don't really know how it works. They cannot measure they thought they 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 cannot well they they cannot tell us exactly how those electrical impulses manifest in thoughts, ideas or words. They really don't know. They can program computers to do something that appears to mimic the idea of thought, but when they start down the road of trying to create an autonomous AI, they don't really know what's going on inside those black boxes. Mm-hmm. I mean, They can fool some of us who aren't trained in that to believe that, yeah, they really can create a a thinking machine, but they don't really know themselves what exactly is going on inside those black boxes. Now, here's the thing. We as Christians understand that this bioelectrical device can be overwhelmed by an external force. We would call it demon possession. Mm -hmm. Is it possible? And this is speculation. I'm not going to say for sure that this can happen, but. Why not? If you actually manage to create an artificial, autonomous intelligence, could it not also be overwhelmed by an external force? It's possible. Maybe. Oh, maybe I this is how possible. they give image, you know, life to the image of the beast. I don't know. But uh, the bottom line, though, and this is the more important thing, is that this is a false religion that is luring people in to believe that it can be done. They're putting their faith in science for salvation rather than in Jesus Christ. He has already promised. Read 1 Corinthians 15. This is a, it's a crash course in theology and apologetics and prophecy all in one. Mm-hmm. Paul, in the first verses of 1 Corinthians 15, lays out the gospel by which we are saved. It's very simple. Believe that Jesus Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures, and on the th- in accordance with the Scriptures on the third day rose again, thus saving us from our sins. That's it. And then he goes on to say, and by the way, then the risen Christ appeared to first Peter, and then to James, and then to 12, and then to all the you know, hundreds of brothers in Galilee, some of whom have fallen asleep, but most are still awake. Yeah. And His point there is, if you don't believe me, ask around. And then he goes on to explain why it's so important that they accept the idea that Jesus of Nazareth literally rose from the dead. Because if he is not raised from the dead, if there is no resurrection, then we are still in our sins and our faith is in vain. If we have faith in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's his point. If resurrection isn't real, then none of this matters. And I would suggest that uh, this is what is meant. By as it was in the days of lot yes which is the parallel to as it was in the days of noah and i'm going to talk about that in this presentation for uh, the hear the watchman conference uh discerning minds we we hear about you know as it was in the days of noah and assume okay that means the nephilim are coming back in a sense the nephilim have never left because Their spirits, when they were destroyed, became demons. This was the uh, understanding of the early church. It was the understanding of Jews in the time of Jesus. That's what's described in the book of Enoch. When they died, the Nephilim, their spirits became demons. In fact, even the Greeks understood this. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: 600 years before, 700 years before Jesus was born, the Greek poet Hesiod, who wrote a lot of what we know about Greek mythology, wrote that the spirits of the men who lived during the golden age when Kronos ruled in heaven... Okay King of the Titans, king of the Watchers, Shemiyaza, yeah. uh, creator of the Nephilim, him and his buddies. When they died, their spirits became demons, And they were kindly going about and helping people and protecting us and da 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 da. The Greeks understood that because the term, and here's the interesting thing, and credit to scholar Amar Anus, ANNUS people want to look this up, who wrote a book called "Were there Greek Rephaim?" And the etymology of the word *meropes anthropoi*. That was the phrase that Hesiod used to describe these men who lived during the golden age. And he pointed out that merapes, you know, *anthropoi* just means you know men, but *meropes* is based on the same root that is behind the Hebrew word Rephaim. So he was talking about these demigods like Hercules and Perseus. By definition, nephilim. Yeah,
1: nephilim.
0: When they died, they became spirits. And they were kindly in helping humanity, and that's why we give them offerings, etc., etc., etc. That's why these demigods like Asclepius uh, had cult. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, you had to give them offerings because you don't want them mad at you. It's a cult. It, it goes even further back. They, the Greeks, got it from the Amorites who worshipped their ancestors, worshipped their deified dead kings of old. This continued on, and frankly, it continues on to the present day. It was Christianized and brought into the church by uh, Augustine,
1: yeah, who yeah.
0: said, "Hey, the saints." The spirits of the saints can intercede for us. It it all fits together. Uh, the The Hebrew prophets and apostles understood what their pagan neighbors believed, from the ancient Amorites to the uh, classical Greeks and Romans. And when you read the Bible carefully and you read the writings of the early church fathers, you see all of this fits together. Will the Nephilim come back? Well, they're already here. They've never mm-hmm. left. And we argue that there is a role for them to play uh, in. Uh, the in in the final battle you know that's that's in the book um but when you look at the, uh, the the parallel verse in 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 luke talking about the days of lot i would suggest that it comes down to this this idea that we can somehow overcome death because what was going on at sodom when lot was uh, rescued miraculously we argue in the book and i've we argued in the book veneration actually that uh Two two things. First of all, the site of Sodom has been found northeast of the Dead Sea. It's an archaeological dig called Tall el Hamam. It's within sight of Mount Nebo. Yes. You can see it from Mount Nebo.
1: Mount Nebo. Nebo. Okay.
0: Yes. Yeah. Another <laughs> reference back to Nabu. Interesting. Uh, that was. And interestingly enough, God called it uh, in Deuteronomy, told Moses to climb this mountain of the Avarim, A-B-A-R-I-M. Well, yeah. that's a Hebrew word that means travelers. Mm-hmm which is a word that Ezekiel used in Ezekiel 39.11 to describe uh, participants in the war of Gog and Magog. Travelers was a term used by the ancient Canaanites to describe the spirits of the Rephaim because they traveled or crossed over from the land of the dead to the land of the living. So essentially Moses was told, climb this mountain of the uh, demons and get your look into the Holy Land, just like Jesus climbed Mount Hermon for the transfiguration. And so there are a cluster of about 1,500 dolmens, which are megalithic funerary monuments, huge uh, limestone slabs, two sides, and then a tabletop slab across the top, look like miniature little stone hinges at the base of Sodom. Hmm. At the base of Sodom. And I asked the director of the scientific analysis for the dig, uh, Dr. Philip Silvia, how are they oriented? Are they oriented to the stars, uh, you know, the uh, solstice? uh, a certain constellation at a certain time of year he said no they're all pointed to what we believe is the temple of sodom oh oh so what were who was worshiped there was it baal peor Baal peor as we showed in the book veneration that peor derives from a hebrew word that means cleft or gap or opening which in that context because when you read psalm 106 verse 28 You remember this, uh, while they were on the uh, plains of Moab, God sent a a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites Mm -hmm. until Phineas took a spear and stabbed an Israelite prince and a Midianite princess who were doing something, possibly a fertility rite. But according to Psalm 106, written 400 years later, it was the fact that the Israelites were eating sacrifices offered to the dead that made, that provoked God to anger. They were eating sacrifices offered to the dead. That was a huge thing in the ancient world because the veneration of the Rephaim was a long lasting cult practice that frankly continues down to this day in the form of ancestor veneration.
1: Yes.
0: So that's anyway, yeah, I know it's, it's a long thing, but I think that's what's meant by as it was in the days of Noah, when you had the Nephilim walking the earth and then in the days of Lot, those spirits who proceeded from the Nephilim during the flood, when they were destroyed, still being worshipped by the pagans around ancient Israel and drawing the Israelites into that worship.
1: Yeah, I, I, what I found when I did my research on Baal Peor, I also found him to be a gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that they used him for, uh, to exercise spirits with. You know, if you're possessed, that's how they did it. They would invite, uh, they would kick out the old spirits and empty the house. And then so the new ones can come in and inhabit them. It was mm-hmm. like a setup. Yeah, we'll do this for payment, and so Baal Peor was the strong man <laughs> who was the gatekeeper of the dead makes to, sense. to bring these entities back back in. And uh, the ancient Israelites really liked this thing. Oh yeah, he also promised great wealth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you if you did this and worshipped him. And, and as the gatekeeper, he'll release. And that that reminds me. I don't have time to. We're almost out of time. I could go on. It reminds me of the. The, the rites of, uh, I guess, I know the ma- Masons and I know that, but I'm trying to get away from that. But it's the, the initiation, the occult initiation of what they call the ladder, uh, Jacob's ladder. Mm-hmm. But you go into Iana's descent into the abyss, you, know, you descend yes. down, and then you rise up the seven steps. Right. You know, you get this occult knowledge in the idea to make it real simple for our viewers to understand uh, a mass amount of stuff I studied is simply you to send down in order to release watchers are those in there to bring them up to help you bail your and it's like, and so that's, you know, that's their occult rites. I, I see that all throughout different places in the scripture. It's it's there and they were practicing this and to get help and get wealth and get to be good money lenders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and it, it all fits, you know. Well, it,
0: it does. And there are a lot of things in these these rituals that we can discuss. But uh, yeah, for, for sake of time, I'll just throw out this one thing. Well, actually, two things uh, that the uh, the occult uh the occult ritual that summoned the Rephaim to the summit of Mount Hermon, called the Rephaim texts of the ancient Canaanites. Mm -hmm. They were summoned as chariot warriors. And the the texts literally say they mount their chariots. They travel first one day and then another, and then they arrive at the threshing floor or the tabernacle of El, the Canaanite creator God at dawn of the third day. I mean, as Christians, dawn of the third day should be really relevant, but in the descent of Inanna, that Mesopotamian myth, Mm -hmm. She has to be released from the netherworld, and she returns, arriving back past those seven gates again on the third day. This was a consistent theme in the ancient world. Something about that third day Mm -hmm. was really, really significant. So when Jesus emerged from the tomb on the third day, it was not a coincidence. It was a reversal of something that the pagans have been drilling into their followers' heads. The pagan gods, that is, have been drilling into their followers'
1: heads for literally thousands of years by the time of the resurrection yeah i i some i just kind of hypothesize you know it's not thus it saith the lord or anything yeah but when yep. i look i want to sum this up with the book of revelation here and they want to go to war with god and draw humanity in a war with god and draw god back to earth so jesus comes back riding on a white horse in revelations 19 and, mm-hmm. and their idea is that's the chaos monster mm-hmm. and they want to chop them up i'm going to use the assyrian version of where they chop me at, they drain his blood and chop him two pieces so you have three three you have the holy trinity there the spirit mm-hmm. and the blood and, mm-hmm. and they, they want to go to war chop up god's order chop up his people chop him up and build back better and so <laughs> that's they're it trying build back to, better i mean i don't know else they're trying to be very simple about it so people understand it they're drilling that into people's minds with the number three all these things yep. and so they're preparing for the final conflict and where they are going to try their best to alter humanity to get god jesus to come back and and, and they want to go to war against the, what they call the chaos monster before because of what god did to the real chaos monster it's sort of a mm-hmm. sort of a revenge type thing and so but it fails so the antichrist yes. and the false prophet and all those people are thrown in the lake of fire.
0: Yeah. And but, then,
1: uh, yeah, because, because it says it right in revelations nine, 19, uh, 19, let me pull that up real mm-hmm. quick. It just says here. And I saw the beast, the Kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on his horse and against his army. And if I want to tell you, Derek, if I was on earth at the time and I see somebody in a white horse riding down with all these people behind them, I wouldn't be thinking about making war against them. Yeah, no, they, <laughs> they these, are deceived. its so uh, They are really deceived. They bought the lie. And then, then God takes care of that. And then it's almost like when I looked in, I just did this thing on Josh Peck's there. And I s- hypothesized there that the why the devil needs to be released after a thousand years, because this is the father's turn.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you ain't going to chop up my water. <laughs> Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. he's gone, and it's no more wickedness, no more evil. Everything gets back to the way God originally intended. Yes, and it's almost like devil games on. That's what God's saying. Uh, He, he, I see him playing chess, and he's outsmarting these these characters at every turn. (laughs) But he 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 he
0: invented the game. He invented the game. Yeah well yeah all
1: we can say to that is just come quickly lord jesus yeah come quickly and everything well it's getting about that time derek i know we gotta depart and i know we only got about an hour here but i appreciate you coming on i'd like to have you back sometime i'd like to continue this conversation because there's a lot more stuff here that i'd like to get into because um there's a ton of more. Even lucky talk like to talk more about bail Pior and all that, and the occult rites of the descent, the, the seven gates and the gates being knowledge and illumination to help humanity. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's all about the Nephilim, <laughs> all about helping humanity. Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> just humanity. like the old uh, it's like the old Twilight Zone episode. You know, it's yeah. hey, it's a book
1: to serve man. Oh wait yeah. a minute, it's a cookbook. It's a cookbook. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, <laughs> you're on the menu. <laughs> well, again, I want to thank you so much for coming on, Derek. And I just want to recommend people to watch Skywatch TV, get Derek, any of Derek Gilbert's books and Sharon Gilbert's Saga, Red Wing Saga, and any of the books on there. Uh, as well. I want to recommend Carl Gallup's and, and um, books as well, and Dr. Michael Heiser, of course. You guys have been helpful a lot in helping pull, pull things together and i always called the I, I always called it the divine uh the heavenly council not the divine council i call it heavenly council and then when michael heiser came out i go wow and there's there, there's somebody else who sees this too <laughs> i just go wow you know when i try to teach some of this stuff by myself or in uh, some conferences that i did smaller conferences people look at you like huh
0: yeah <laughs> where are you getting that well because this is not mainstream theology but it is biblical it is yeah. biblical theology
1: yeah it is and again i just want to thank you for coming on i look forward to trying to, to do this again and maybe if we can get Sharon on here i'd love to get you two together i don't well, know if well, my John, wife would come on excellent. she's kind of camera shy but i'd like to get her on here too but you know i don't know <laughs> <laughs> enjoy we'd enjoy it all right. Yeah. I'll let you know, um, set up some time, maybe if you want to do that again. And I'm going sure. to be looking for some other folks to interview and try to do what the Lord told me to do and get the messages out and what needs to be met. Cause the church is not learning this. They have sort of shoved it aside and I gotten de- heated debates about, Oh, these are the sons of Seth and Genesis chapter six. I'm going, no. <laughs> that is the standard teaching in, the, yeah. in uh, seminaries today. And, but if you understand the pagan gods, especially Revelations chapters two and three, look at the patron gods, the three top patron gods of each of the cities. It's the same template. Yep. Uh, you know, descend into the abyss and raise the sun deity back to rule the world. That's a kind of a simplistic way I put it. And if they mm-hmm. all are consistent, it's <laughs> just amazing. Anyway, I want to thank you again, Derek, and uh, look forward to seeing you again. You bet. Thank you. It's been an honor. All right. Okay. God bless you.
0: 18 plus.